we are going to start in the book of Jonah. There's going to be <clears throat> so much to cover in every sermon, and I've, uh, uh, I've promised that I would, um, well, I've promised myself. I didn't promise you, so I can break that one, but, but I won't go too long, but I will, I will share this story. A few years ago, I, um, well, up until my final year of high school, I, uh, I was in a team sports rugby, but I also did uh, Greco-Roman wrestling. Yeah, picture that, if you will, me in spandex. And I used to do that on a Monday and Wednesday evening uh, in the Logan PCYC, actually just down, down the road here. And, um, uh, and, and one of, my, uh, one of the, the, the drills that we would do is um, there was a, an, an international wrestler who was in our club, which was great for prestige, but really tough to wrestle against him for warm-ups. And then one of the things that the coach would do is he would set him in the middle big, he's like seven years older than, than me and most of the other people in the club, uh, set him in the middle of the mat and the rest of us would sort of do, do warm-ups around and one by one we would take a turn at coming into the center, trying to grapple him, get into the ground and often failing miserably. And I remember I was, I was uh, doing the circles, warming up and, and watching, I was, I was about fifth or sixth in queue and uh, as I'm warming up, I'm watching how he's uh, taking everybody down and what looks like a bit of a weakness on how he would leave his right leg exposed. And, and so I'm walking around and I'm realizing that I'm going to be able to get him, probably for the first time. I'm going to be able to get him if I can, if I can use his own body weight, big dude, uh, enormous dude. Uh, if he can sort of, if I'll get him to sort of come at me a bit and, and I'll go for the, uh, the inside of his right leg, come around behind him and bring him into a suplex. It was going to work. So I'm walking around and I'm, no one's trying this. So I'm seeing it as such a good idea until my friend, slightly smaller than me, but quite quick, he goes into the middle. He was number four and I'm watching him and the guy stole my move. I didn't tell him that's what I was going to do, but he stole my move. And he goes in the middle and, and there he goes. He puts some pressure on. The big guy pushes back. He, he ducks underneath. He's underneath his right leg. And, and then the big guy does this move, which is very complicated, uh, quite unorthodox. Uh, works very well for big guys. It's called sitting. And so as my friend takes the, the right leg, he drops down and breaks about seven ribs. He doesn't break any ribs, but he's just flattened underneath this guy. And I, I laughed very hard. I, I, I watched him there struggling for breath and get up and limp to the side of the mat while I keep warming up. And, and I did find it funny, but the one thing I could never think was, what an idiot. That's what I was going to do. I'm glad I was second to him uh, or the whole story would never have been told at a, uh, in, in the future years, but I'm glad I was, it was not to go first. The, the error that we can make as we read tonight Jonah's story is that we can watch this hilarious, ironic, even, even ridiculous occurrence of what happens with this rebel, this, what we might be tempted to say, this idiot Jonah. We watch him and say that he's making these idiotic mistakes that we would never make. But friends, we need to realize that we will and do and have made the same mistakes he has. And really the only thing stopping us from, from doing the same is that we've been able to step back a few thousand years, watch him do it, and it got right, written down in eternal scripture. We, we are in a privileged position in that sense. We're going to watch some, some things happen to Jonah that are a lot more embarrassing than getting sat on by an international Indian wrestler. Uh, but I hope that we would take the lesson, not of pride, not of, not of thinking ourselves better, but how we can respond and repent for our, our lifestyles that do not enough take into consideration the glory of God among the nations. 
I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3. I believe it will be on the, on the board behind me. But I hope that you do have your own Bible and can read it in your lap as you follow. You might take notes in your Bible, on your phone, whatever you do, but see the Word of God in your own Bible. It reads like this. <clears throat> now the Word of Yahweh, or the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, will always mean Yahweh, covenant name of God in the Old Testament when you read that. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil or their trouble, your version might say, has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And in this short reading, may God bless us as we consider it. I want you to see that in these first two verses, even without the third, the first two verses, we meet the three main characters of this whole book. In fact, you meet a, a symbol of the, the three main characters of the entire Bible, or really the entire world history from beginning to end. In these first verses, you meet God. He is always the most primary, fundamental, important character. God, the word of the Lord, that, that, uh, that God who had covenanted himself to Israel, Yahweh was his name that he had, he had revealed to them. Secondly, we meet Jonah, son of Amittai. And thirdly, we meet the nation of Assyria, which is symbolized by the, the large, prominent city of Nineveh. These three characters are symbolic, really, of all the characters of the Bible. We have God. We have Jonah representing the saved, God's people, and we have the lost. Or in other words, we have the God, uh, we have God, his people, and the nations. And as this book unfolds, we will be seeing, and it is true, it is not myth, we will be looking at all sorts of arguments for that from Scripture in future weeks. But what we need to realize, we will look at it in its own story. But we will be seeing it, as I believe God wants us to, through the scope of the whole New Testament, through the scope of God's eternal plans, not, not just his plans for Jonah, that plan of which Jonah is a part, which is the glory of God among the nations of earth. God, his people, and the lost nations. Every single person finds themselves in one of those categories. Hint, you're not in the first one. You're not God. You may be, either you will be, either among his people or among the lost. Today, right now, there are lost people among us. You know that you are outside of Christ, not saved. You may come and I'm glad you do. You may be a churchgoer. I'm glad you are. But you have not yet been saved by being born again, trusting Jesus for your salvation. I pray that you do. But when I say the lost and the nations, symbolized here by Assyria or Nineveh, we're meaning not just unsaved people but unreached people. And this will be a theme that we come back to over and over again in the book of Jonah. When we talk about unreached people, we don't just mean people who live a few minutes down the road from church but aren't Christians. But we use this in a, in a, uh, in a missiological, technical term in the world today. There are those who study missions and people groups around the world. Uh, you can look this up on thejoshuaproject.com. I'll get a little app for that. And they say there's still around 7,000 people groups, that is a, a, a language-speaking, culturally synonymous group of people 
who have no access in any way to Jesus, the gospel, or church, or the word. They're not just unsaved. They have no idea what you mean by have you heard about Jesus of Nazareth. They, they have no access. They can't stumble upon something in the street. There is no gospel uh, uh, proclamation going among those people groups. That is what I mean by the lost or the nations. Uh, those, those people groups out there that don't have the gospel in a functional way among them at all. <clears throat> God, his people, and the nations. This is what we, these are who we will meet with in this first chapter and this first sermon. Look at, look at verse 1 there. What is significant is that he's not simply called God or, or Lord with a capital L, but a small case O-R-D, which, which symbolizes master, Adonai. Rather, what we meet with here is that covenant name Yahweh. When we meet God here in Jonah, we need to realize we are talking about a God of covenant. Not simply a God who is creator. He is that. Not simply a God who is, who is sustainer of the world, and he is that. But God who creates, sustains the world, and then graciously enters into this world, both before the fall and after the fall of sin, into covenant to utilize his people to spread his glory around the globe. This is the God of covenant, Yahweh, who revealed himself to Abraham, revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites and to us especially in Jesus. He came and related even in the garden. When you look at the Garden of Eden, you need to realize that, that they were not always walking with, with the, in the actual uh, presence or the covenantal presence of God. Of course, he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But in a covenantal sense, he comes at certain times and in certain ways. And Adam and Eve would meet with God in a more personal sense because that is who God is. He creates and then he comes to relate to us. Even after sin came and they fell into this cursed world because of their rebellion through sin, God came again to them and he made to them curses for what they have done, cursed the devil, cursed the man, cursed the, the woman, cursed the world, and yet there was made promises of ultimate redemption. God came with the promise of ultimate redemption. Then throughout history, he came again, and over and over again, we read through the book of Genesis and all the Old Testament where God comes to his people, makes promises, relates to them, makes covenant, and looks forward to an ultimate redemption coming that will encompass the whole world in some sense. We need to look even further back than the garden. Look, look to the Trinity in eternity past, before... And, our, 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 our expressions start breaking down here. We can't talk about the time before there was time or, or the world before there was the world. The Trinity was not existing in a space-time continuum as you, you and I are bound to understand things. And yet before time, before space was created, spoken into existence by God, there was the Trinity. This all-glorious, all-perfect, self-sustaining, self-happy, loving community of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, as far back as we can attempt to bend our minds to think in eternity, that is where we are told that God covenanted between the Father and the Son to send the Son for salvation as the world's greatest and ultimate missionary. 
So that we see God is a sending God, not just once sin comes. He's always been relational within the Trinity. He has always planned to send and to, to come to us to relate as the plan went from the Trinity before the fall and even now after the fall, culminating in Jesus Christ who came from the Father. The Father sent the Son to us to relate to us, to bring that redemption. <clears throat> and that King, Jesus Christ, paid the ultimate price of redemption that was so long told about. He came and, and gave his, his life. His blood was shed for our sins. He was made an enemy before the Father so that us enemies might be made the children of God, the people of his kingdom, accepted in as we were originally created to be. And having paid that price, the king was risen up out of the grave and onto a glorious throne in heaven. And do you remember what he said when he was raised moments before he ascended to heaven? He said, all authority on, in heaven and earth is given to me. Think Daniel 7. I'm, I'm getting into future sermons already, but Daniel 7, we see the ancient of days, Yahweh, give to a son of man or give to somebody who looked like a man. He gave this man divine ultimate authority over all the nations. How can God give divine authority to a man? Unless, of course, that man was God himself in human flesh just after he had been killed for sin and resurrected. Jesus, he's, he's completing that image saying, all authority on heaven and earth was given to me. And he says to his people, now go preach the gospel to every creature, as Mark 16 tells us. And, and so he commanded them. And as the word goes out through the church, redemption comes to the world. So we need to see, as we talk about missions, we're not just talking about we have a surplus in our budget. It'd be sure nice to get out of our comfort, comfort in this society. Let's go, let's go spend some time with some orphans and paddle down a creek and hike a mountain, call it missions. That's what white Christians do. We go cross-culture. Missions is the heart of God. And there's a few things you can say as true as that. The mission or missions, is the heart of the triune God. So as we start thinking about going, sending, taking the gospel elsewhere, it is this ultimate motivation that the triune God may receive glory the way he has always planned to do so, which is through the mission of his son, through his church, by his word and gospel to the nations. There's so much in this, and I'm glad we've got weeks and weeks to, to be able to go through it all. But here, this is why the, the book of the Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God. The mission starts with God. The book of Jonah starts with God. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Let's meet Jonah, hey? <clears throat> you're going to like Jonah because you're going to see you in him, but you're also going to really hate Jonah because you're going to see a lot of you in him. Jonah's an interesting character. I want to take you right back. Okay, we're going 760 or so years before the birth of Christ. 760 or so BC, a long time ago. So for those maybe new Christians, unfamiliar with the Bible history, you've got creation, then the fall, then, then the, tower, the flood and the Tower of Babel, then 
God picks Abraham, says to him, I'll, 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 uh, I'm going to bless you and create a nation out of you. Uh, and then 400 years later, his people get uh, freed. Uh, sorry, about 500 years later, the nation that came out of Abraham's descendants are freed through Moses from slavery in Egypt. They go into the desert, 40 years in the desert, get the Ten Commandments, plunder and, and loot Canaan, the promised land. They, they, they start there. Then you can slot in the book of Ruth that we went through, time of the judges for about for a few hundred years. And then you have the kingdom through David and, and Solomon, or beginning with Saul. So put that, maybe you've got a mental map going. Uh, you have the, the kingdom started at about 1000 BC. And a few hundred years later, we get to King Jeroboam III. King Jeroboam III in Israel. What has happened at this point is that though God gave one king over the whole nation of Israel, the 12 tribes in that land of Canaan, if you're in thinking Europe, right, it's over on the, the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, that, that kingdom had split after the, children, after the sons of Solomon. So you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. A civil war had somewhat broke out and they, they became at times disinterested with each other, at times at each other's throats. Sounds like brothers, right? Yep, that makes a lot of sense. They, they had, uh, uh, so the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. That'll come into play a bit later in the book. Uh, northern kingdom was Israel, and that's where Jonah was a prophet. You can write this down if you're taking notes. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we realize that Jonah, this is the only other place other than the New Testament, the only place in the Old Testament that Jonah is mentioned. And so we have this very uh, uh, helpful little timestamp that Jonah was a prophet in the days of King Jeroboam III, who was a godless king. He was an evil man. He encouraged animal sacrifices to foreign gods among his people. He, he encouraged and engaged in adultery, fornication. Again, idolatry, that was, that was unforgivable. And he led the nation into this. And what had happened, though, in his time, there was still economical blessing. The, the, the nation was still growing. It was doing well. And, and, and what had happened was the upper classes were growing financially. They were great. The poorer classes were being abused and oppressed. And so in 2 Kings, we see that Jonah is a prophet in this day and age. Let me ask you, have you read any of the Old Testament prophets? Do you know what they would say to a, to a kingdom that is rich but godless, oppressing people and defying God? Now, whatever you might think, Jonah wasn't one of those prophets. Jonah had a sweet deal in the, king, in the kingdom of Israel. He was not like Isaiah. He was not like Hosea, calling the whole nation of Israel a bunch of whores. He was not like Amos, promising the destruction that was coming from a foreign army. Jonah's job was to go to the king, godless though he was, with that big uh, uh, scepter who could command Jonah's death in a moment. Jonah went to him and promised that God will extend your borders, increase our riches, and make the kingdom flourish. That's a good gig. That makes you a very popular man in the Old Testament, especially with a godless king. When you don't come to him and demand that he change all of his ways, lest God destroy him, you're a popular guy. You have to realize that it was quite a, quite a significant task to be a prophet. So you can imagine that Jonah would have been respected, 
well looked after. He would have been treated with respect and with, with riches, most likely. And so in this amazing life that he has, very uh, um, uh, uh, contrasted to people like Hosea and Amos who are preaching at just about the exact same time, Jonah has a tremendous life and then God misreads the request of Jonah. God, for some reason, thinks he's sovereign and comes into Jonah's cushy, beautiful life and decides to go and send him to a foreign nation. You can understand now why Jonah would flee. What right does God have to come and ruin Jonah's tremendous life? Well, let's keep, let's keep looking. <clears throat> this is, so this is Jonah's life. He was, he was called to go, uh, to, to leave his comfort, his popularity, and go to that foreign nation. So you'll see there verse 2. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And here we meet Assyria or Nineveh. Again, this is 760 BC. So throw your mind way back. We are in, I don't expect you to know this, but we are in what is called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. This is a superpower unlike any nation that had ever existed on the face of the earth up to this time. This was an extremely powerful, brutal nation. But, but at the moment, let's focus on the fact that they were extremely wealthy, powerful, and violent. No one was a better, uh, had better uh, battle-ready soldiers, armies, siege towers. They, 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 there's, there's reason to believe that they designed the, what is now called the battering ram. I'll throw this in. I, I, I know we're short on time, but there's this. I was listening to this historian uh, lecturer, and he was talking about the the Assyrians' bloodthirst, and that they would they designed what was what was of utmost terror to people, and so they would build these siege towers. Like for if you watch Lord of the Rings, it's not unlike a, an orc Urukai army, right? Think think Tolkien here, and and did Tolkien write Lord of the Rings? Good. What's the other one? That's the one. Ignore that. So, so think, think that army though, right? They would have these four enormous siege towers with, with Assyrian gods, which were like people with horse feet and wings. These, these enormously 25 meter tall siege towers. And in the middle, they would have an extremely huge battering ram. And on top of these siege towers, they would have, they would have it would all be fireproof. So they couldn't be burned, but they would have these, these arrows that would fly out. And they had what they would call fish hooks. They would throw weapons that would not just kill people, that's boring, but would grab people off towers and pull them down, dangling them by hooks. This is the kind of thing that Assyrians would do. They would smash into towns, burn them to the ground, which, if you're thinking with a Roman mind or with a, with a Greek, Alexander the Great kind of mind, you're thinking that's not very good for the economy. You want to move in, scare them, make them submit to you, and then give you taxes for the years to come. Assyria didn't care about that. They went to cities, demolished them, raped the women, turned the children into slaves, beheaded every man. They would make pyramids out of human skulls just to scare everybody else. They would remove houses down to the foundation stone, take all of the gold back to their temple, leave the place a mess. It was said that they used to create seas of red sand. 
Red sand, just by the way, is blood-stained sand. They would go into battle, destroy every enemy, and as they rode off, the, the red would be turned up into this dust storm. The Assyrians were extremely powerful and godless people. They had their pagan gods, but their god was a god of war. They had this, this other god back from the very early generation. So again, let me throw it into history here. You have the Tower of Babel being built around 2300 BC, just after the flood, 2,300 years ago. And from that line of Nimrod, who, who stirred the people up to build the Tower of Babel, the, the grandson of, of, uh, of Noah, from that line comes Assyria and Babylon. And they, they worship the gods of Dagon and Assyria also worship the god called Ashur. That's why it's Assyria, Asheria. So, so <laughs> this god that they had was a, was a fish god. So they had, like we said, they would send their fishing hooks to people and dangle them. But as they would carry off slaves, children and grown men alike, and especially kings at the front of the line, what they would do to their enemies would, would create this, this huge hundreds meter long fish hook line. And they would dig that enormous hook up through the jaw, out the mouth of these men. I'm not sorry. And they would lead them through the desert back to their hometown and march them around the city like a, like a line of fish on a fishing line. They would then go and sacrifice them to their gods or otherwise torture and ruin their humanity. This was Assyria. They were extremely powerful, extremely ungodly, extremely goddess, but they also created what becomes crucifixion. What, what had been perfected by the Persians and climaxed in the Roman Empire of the crucifixion of our Lord started with the Assyrians. They had designed this, get ready, uh, and, and what they would do is they would sharpen the ends of poles, stick it in the ground and dangle a man over the top of it. And they would, they would let him hang and, and lower day by day in the scorching heat until he starts making contact with the pole. And then they remove the ropes that dangled him. So there was his own body weight that day by day as he's uh, strapped his arms and legs so that he could not struggle away, he would sink slowly until the pike entered through his head. They would chop his body off, slide that off like a kebab, and put that pole with the head on top around their city as a threat to everybody. They were filthy people. Do you like them yet? Are they the sort of people that you'd like to, to go and drop a tract off to? Are they, are they that kind of people yet? This is, the, historically, where this is, is, is basically northern Iraq. This is very similar to, as I've heard one commentator and preacher say, it's, it'd be kind of like you getting the commission, take a bunch of tracts, go and, and hold a, a peace meeting in a, in a beautiful little town in northern Iraq, get, get ISIS together, tell them Jesus loves them, and tell them to repent. Whose hands are going up for that? that that's a little scary. It was worse, I think, for Jonah. Absolutely. And so this nation had been in its peak for about 150 years. And yet what we realize is that at the time of Jonah, there was a, there was, uh, there was a breakdown. There had what we said before in verse 2, it reads this, Arise, go to Nineveh. So Nineveh is one of their capital cities. That great city, not meaning tremendous city, but meaning that important city, that major city. Go to that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, you might read that and think at first glance, what God wants Jonah to do is just go and preach repentance and judgment. But what is actually, I think, uh, at least one thing we have to consider is that the word evil here is the same word for trouble 
or calamity or catastrophe. God's not primarily saying they're sinful, go and judge them. He's primarily saying I, their trouble has come up before me, go to them. And yes, as we see in chapter four, uh, sorry, chapter three, that will involve the promise of judgment if they will not repent. But what we need to see here is that this filthy, idolatrous, bloodthirsty, abusive and oppressive nation, God looks down and says of them, their trouble has come before me. Their cries have come before me. I hear their difficulties and so I want you to go to them, Jonah. What right does God have not only to upset Jonah's life, but to care about Assyria. Let them burn. Let them crumble. Let them die. That's what they deserve. Oh, Jonah, we're asking God for what we deserve now. Will we pull back the borders of Israel? Will I bring up Assyria to come and destroy Israel as you know they deserve? Has not Israel been all these years an idolatrous, stiff-necked, bloodthirsty, oppressive people? Sure, you have less weapons than the Assyrians, but not for lack of trying. You have a few less gods than them, but make no mistake, Israel had, had accumulated many false gods at this point. Did God have any, any bondage to, to, to serve Israel and not Assyria? If it's all by grace, then no one can claim the prerogative. Here's Jonah, misunderstanding this. And, and so you might think as, you, as we read this, why? Why does verse 3 tell us that while God commanded he go, he fled? Why did he do that? And number one might be, well, he was obviously very scared there were bloodthirsty people. But we don't get any of that in the book of Jonah. What we're told is that he is resistant to their blessing. He's not afraid, although he might have been, but that's not the, the, the controlling motive here. You can turn over to chapter 4. I know I'm skipping way ahead, but in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah actually complains to God and tells him that right back at the beginning of the book, when he fled from the commission of God, this was his motivation. Chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord, and very loose usage of the word pray here. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The Ninevites repent, just as a, as a cheat, right? You can read your spark notes here. G, uh, God gives the Ninevites repentance. And Jonah comes out with this. Lord, this is why I did, this is the reason I didn't want to come. Because if I come, they'll repent, you'll be merciful, and they don't deserve that. But there's more. There's another layer of this. You can look in uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 6, which is uh, just a few books to your left. Hosea was a prophet, a prophet of judgment in the time of Jonah. And he had spoken to Israel in chapter 11, verse 5. He says, he's speaking of Israel who has disobeyed God. And he says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Oh, good. Egypt is where they were slaves. Little hint. So to go back to Egypt means going to go be slaves. God's saying, I won't send you to Egypt. 
but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsel. Jonah had heard sermons from God's prophets promising that Assyria is going to come here and in later books we hear, lead you off with fish hooks. Why does God tell Jonah this city's in trouble, go preach to them? Surely in Jonah's mind is, yeah, let them perish and crumble at the hands of their enemies. If they are restored, if they are allowed to continue, they will destroy us. And yet his, this was his commission. This cannot be unlike if, if we were to transport ourselves back a few years to the, to the great tragedy of 2001, September 11. You remember that of the, the attack against the World Trade Centers in New York, not, not our country, I know, but still our, our kind of side of the world. And then the day after of this terrible attack, a Christian minister whose family had perished in the fires was told, rise up over to Iran, I need you to preach to these men that they may, may, be, may become great and forgiven and receive mercy all the while he sees them encroaching on his borders. How would you respond to that? Let's, let's not look at Jonah and laugh at him, mock him, or think we're better. We are Jonah. This is a not commendable, but at least understandable response from Jonah. So let's see in verse 3 what he actually does. In this great moment of calling, he fails and he flees. Verse 3 says, But Jonah rose... Well, that's what the Lord told him to do. I'll rise. Okay, I'll rise. And he fled to Tarshish. Tarshish was the name of, of dozens of cities in the old ancient world. It literally just means deep ocean sea. So some uh, islands out in the ocean sea would be called the island of Tarshish. It just means open waters. So probably here it just means that he fled to the ocean. So he went from, from uh, Israel, instead of going east to Assyria and Nineveh, he goes southwest towards Tarshish, towards the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do you notice how many times the word down is used here? God had given him a calling. And instead, he went down to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And then he found a ship and he paid the fare and went down into the, the, the ship. And later on in chapter two, uh, in the end of chapter one, sorry, we will see that he is thrown into the ocean and goes down into the belly of the ocean and the belly of the fish. To run from the Lord's commission, however difficult or brain racking it is, is to go downwards, to flee from the presence of the Lord. What a foolish thing to think we can do, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Send somebody else, Jonah might have thought, if I leave, God will leave me alone. He flees from the presence of the Lord. Sin makes us illogical. Sin, when, when we, we are always in our best mind, when we are reading the word of the Lord and obeying. Psalm 19, we read it this morning, tells us that the word of the Lord makes us wise. 
When we, when we push against it, when we rebel against God's calling and his word, we only ever become foolish, inconsistent, and illogical. This is what Jonah did. He tried to flee from an omnipotent God who is present in all places. He went down, down, and down. He had not realized, he had not realized that what he had been called to do was the very fulfillment of what the triune God had created the world for. Not fulfillment in the sense that he was going to finish that great commission, but fulfillment in the sense that he was going to go and plant a seed it is going to be used for a revival in a godless pagan city as, a, as, as, an, as one step towards the fulfillment of what God had always purposed. You see, back with Adam in the garden, God had given him a commandment. It wasn't just we always focus on the one. It wasn't just as we learn in Sunday school, don't eat of the tree. It was so much more. It was fill the earth and subdue it. While you're, you're in one small place here, I will make you great. I will be with you. Take my glory across the globe. Spread Eden out. Make the whole world glorious for my glory. And, and, and then though sin came in and, and ruined Adam's ability to do that, God then comes again to a man named Abram. And he speaks a very similar commission to him. And he picks... It was about the rest of the nations. And yet it wasn't even just about the rest of the nations. It was about the glory of God. Jonah had missed it. Jonah had not realized what would come later through one called a greater Jonah. Jesus would, would be preaching and he's, he's arguing with his interlocutors, the, the Pharisees who, who demand a, a miracle. And he says, no sign will be given to you as a little show of magic to impress you. Nothing will be given to you but the sign or the miracle of Jonah. Jonah, Jesus says, was in the mouth of a fish for three days. So also the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and then he will rise. That's the sign. And he, and he says, the, the men of Nineveh will, will rise up on judgment day and condemn you. Because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. But now one greater than Jonah is here and you are not repenting. Jesus, this greater Jonah, comes and he says in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. So I, I preach, to, I tell you, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. You need to see that Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is an echo of Abraham in chapter 12, who was told, through you, every nation will be blessed, which is an echo of Adam, God's original intent of creation. Through Adam, the whole world would know the glory of God. Jonah had missed that, so he did not answer the call. He desired rather to flee for comfort and for, to, to, to escape the affliction and the suffering and all that that would entail. These three elements are in every single one of those commissions, to Adam, to Abraham, and then through the great commission, that God is Lord, that he will bless his people, and that he will use his people to reach the ends of the earth. Noah did not see that. But before we, we judge Noah, I mean Jonah, before we judge Jonah and, and say that we are better than him and that we, we wouldn't have done that and we, we definitely wouldn't and how stupid it is that you would, you would hear the call of God 
on you, on you and, and then run away. Prefer comfort to the glory of God? Who would do such a ridiculous thing? But friends, the error would be to think that you and I have not received just as an explicit gospel call to the Great Commission as Jonah did. It would be an error for us to think that that when Jesus spoke the Great Commission, he spoke it to a few, he spoke it to some, but not to me. To think that way is as foolish as Jonah hearing the words of the Lord to him and fleeing, asking for that word to apply to anybody else. It applies to us. Don't think that we in the Great Commission can, 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 can wiggle out of that commandment. I, I have to ask you today, as, as you look at Jonah who ran from the call, we cannot say we are any different unless you or I have intentionally, and have you, have you? I mean, I know that in the fulfilling of the Great Commission, someone's got to stay here, right? Who will I preach to, right? Someone's got to stay here, help me out. Someone's got to stay. We can't all leave, can we? First of all, sure we can. More people will be saved. But secondly, it's true that, yes, some will be, be called by God to stay where you are, minister where you are, and others will go. But let me ask, are you staying, though God called you to go, are you staying because you are absolutely sure that God has not called you to go elsewhere? Have you plucked up the courage to pray, to think of the billions who are in those groups who do not even know what the word Jesus means? Have you prayed with them in mind and asked God in all honesty, despite what it would cost, despite what comforts you would lose, despite what danger there would be on the way, despite what, what those people have done against your people, however different the cultures be, have you plucked the courage to ask the Lord, do you desire me to go? Our default should be the nations until there is no people group left that doesn't know Jesus' name and glorify him. The default must be go. Let us be sure that we remain because we know that's what God wants us to do. And this doesn't mean go on impulse, buy a plane ticket, disappear, be unprepared. There's character work to do. There's preparation work to do. But friends, are you even considering whether God wants to set you on that trajectory? I know we've, we've got young people, not even finished high school in this room. I don't care. Consider the nations. Maybe before you get into university, rack up a debt and set your, set your life on a, on a course that God has not called you to do, would you first, would you first consider whether God would call you to a nation other than our own? Maybe you're the opposite. You've got kids, you're, you're here, you're, you're where you are and, and you're all planted here and roots are down. And kind of like Jonah, we go, well, look, I went down to Tarshish, got on a, went down to Joppa and there was a ship leave. It was very convenient. God wouldn't provide me a ship to go where I wanted to go unless it was his will. Let us be very careful before we look at our lives and say, it all worked out, therefore the Lord blessed it. Situation is not authority. Jonah could have claimed that very same thing. We're going to see in the middle of the storm that comes, he's sleeping easy. I went down to Joppa, took out my coins, there's a ship. How convenient. I hopped on, they were going where I needed to go. This mu I must have heard the Lord wrong. God's fine for me to stay where I am. Maybe we've made that 
that claim. And, and can I just point you, though we have hundreds to look at, can I point you to brothers and sisters, a brother and sister who have gone to Southeast Asia from this very church with a, with a four-year-old and a three-year-old who has said, yes, difficult, yes, a lot to sacrifice, but so much glory to be gained. That's the, the call that we must all take seriously. <clears throat> and maybe there are some of us here who this whole call makes absolutely no sense because you don't know Jesus. You, you might think of this whole, whole, whole call to take this Christian religion to other nations. Give it up, right? Just sit here, settle down. That That's not all that rich of a thing to go and share. But you think that way because you don't know Jesus. You may think that, that Christians are, are trying to take over the world in this ridiculous great commission. Whatever you think, friend, have you, have you taken advantage of what billions in the world have no access to? Have you heard the gospel call to believe in Jesus, who like Jonah, but better than Jonah, died for sin, went into the grave, not a fish, three days, three nights, rose again to prove that his payment was sufficient over death, that his payment was sufficient for your sins, have you, in, in hearing that, believed? Will the men of Nineveh, those godless Assyrians, rise up in judgment day, point at you and say, Lord, judge them. They heard week after week, year after year, the exposition of the word pointing to Jesus Christ, and they still rebelled against his call. Will they judge you on that day? And if so, friends, today is the day that you, that you avoid that future course. You come today to receive salvation in Christ and submit your life to him so that he can use you to reach millions of others if you would be so consecrated. Let's pray. God, as we consider Jonah, we see that, see that your, your glory, your glorious mission, the mission for your glory has always been at play. And the problem that really seems to throw a spanner in the works is that you decide to involve sinful, foolish humans. God, we thank you for this reality, that you have not passed over us or bypassed us in order to use just angels and, and visions and things like that to complete your mission, but you involve us, your children, on our Father's work. But God, forgive us for ways that we have thought little of your glory. We have not considered how weighty a thing it is to be used to take the gospel to other souls, yet alone to places that Christ has never been named. We pray, Lord, for the, the speeding along of this great commission, that through the missionaries who today are out in the field, who are suffering with sickness and inconvenience and persecution and death, would you, Lord, persevere them, preserve them, empower them, strengthen them and encourage them. With our money, may we support them. With our prayers, may we uphold them. But Lord, by their example, would we follow them? Would you please rise up from this people in, in the future, people who will go and give their lives on the mission field. And God, as we, as we consider this glorious task, may you please bring to submission and to repentance and to faith those who have not realized the glory of the gospel have not seen Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, as their God. God, please save souls. Bring us under his, his reign in his kingdom. 
He who died for us and rose for us. We love you, Lord. We pray to be used for your glory. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.